Today we're going to be in Matthew 1. If you wouldn't turn there, Matthew 1 through 17, there's a lot of names. And so rather than put uh, any of you blessed folks through the, uh, the challenge of reading all those names or pronouncing all those names, turn there and follow along. Kiddos, yeah, y'all can go. This is a fun video if you want to hang, but you're, you're dismissed. Um, so rather than, so turn there, Matthew 1, I think it's on page 807, 1 through 17, and we're going to listen in as uh, Andrew Peterson in his brilliance of, from Behold the Lamb um, sings this for us. So turn there and then follow, uh, follow along as, as the video sings it through. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar, Perez he brought Hezron up and then came. Aram then a man and Abinashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse he had David, who we know as king. David he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam. Followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Who grandfather Joachim, who caused the Babylonian captivity, because he was a right there in Matthew 1. Uh, it's interesting. Had we had just somebody read that and then, you know, that challenge, we would all have just labored with them. Uh, but you would also have been thinking, what is he going to preach about this? It's just a bunch of names. How many of y'all, when you get to genealogies in the Bible, you're doing a Bible reading plan and you're like, all right, cool, I'm going to skim this, right? Because <laughs> you're like, I don't know, I don't know what to do with this. It's cool that God did some stuff and kept track of it, but we'll skip on to the part that I can apply to my life today, right? But it's a bit of a, a mistake uh, because in, that, in those genealogies, we, we actually, um, if we skip them, we, we miss one of the richest of God's promises and really one of the richest of God's messages. And that message is actually that he's a God who keeps his promises. 
And so as you open Matthew, and if you know anything about the structure of the Bible, it's okay if you don't, but uh, the, the let, me, let, me, let me qualify that. If you're here visiting and you don't know anything, great. That's, that's, we're, we're glad you're here. If you're you know, a Christian for 25 years, you need to know a little bit about your Bible. Um, but the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, are all specific portraits or accounts of the story of Jesus. And, and they all start differently. If you know this, um, and Matthew is, is kind of the first one in the, in the New Testament, but it, it's probably not the most, the, it's probably not the one that was written first. It was probably Mark, but Mark jumps right into the action. Um, Luke starts by, by telling that he, he's sort of made this really detailed journalistic view to put together this account, and then, and then he goes into the birth, and then he captures the, the genealogy a little bit later, and then John starts at eternity, um, all the way back, and, and talks about the divinity and how he became man, and then jumps into the action pretty quickly. So they all have a different starting point, and that's because they all have a different audience, a different intended uh, group of people that they were writing to. And so Matthew is writing to primarily Jewish people. And if you know, the Jews are the people who had been awaiting the Messiah. The Messiah comes, and he's actually for everybody. And that's another mind-blowing lesson that we won't talk a ton about today, but it's, a, it's an incredible thing that the Jews had a hard time getting over that this Messiah wasn't just for them. But Matthew also had, had to do, Matthew and other apostles had to do a lot of work to convince the Jewish people that this, this was the Messiah that God had promised them. So when Matthew starts out his gospel account, he is being very careful to make sure that he gives a lineage or um, a genealogy to connect Jesus to what God had been doing in their history from day one. A couple years ago, there was a, um, a pretty famous pastor who made the suggestion that and it got taken out of context and ran a little far with, but uh, he made the suggestion that we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. That we need to unhitch the gospel or our faith from the Old Testament. Uh, because our faith, and, and, and here, this is a good lesson in not canceling people. Cancel culture is exhausting and it should not be true of the Christian people, just as a quick side note, okay? We need to, we need to be better at like listening and giving people the benefit of the doubt, allowing people the opportunity to grow and explain themselves, right? So Christian culture is exhausting, or cancel culture is exhausting, and it should not be a part of our culture within the church, okay? So anyway, a couple years ago, he says this thing, and I'm like, mm, that's scary. So what, his point that he was making, I don't think he made it well, but his point that he was trying to make, as I listened in a little bit more, is that when kids go off to a university or when you're just talking to people out in the world that are secular, uh, we don't need to convince them, first and foremost, that Jonah was actually literally swallowed by a fish or that the walls of Jericho actually literally came down whenever we screamed. Now, those things happen, and he would even say that they did, but he said we don't have to start there. What we should start is with the resurrection of Jesus because there's actual historical hard to refute evidence that Jesus was indeed a human that lived and died and was resurrected. He said, if you start there, you get them to see Jesus and Jesus saves them, then he'll take care of making them believe in faith the other stories. as well. So not a bad point. Didn't approach it the right way, got ran with by people. And, and I just don't think it was the right way to say it because we don't need to unhitch our gospel or our faith from the Old Testament. In fact, exactly what Matthew's doing here is hitching that sucker up and he's double checking it and he's making sure all the pins are in and he's hooking in the chains and he's checking the lights and he's making sure that this New Testament faith is following exactly where the Old Testament had been going for generations and for years. 
It's exactly what Matthew's doing here, is actually hitching and double-checking the hitch of our faith to the Old Testament. And here's why he does that, is because Jesus doesn't just appear from nowhere. Jesus is not an innovator, right? People just pop up and have influence all the time, right? It happens all the time in our culture. It's like, oh, this person, did you, did you see their TED Talk? I don't know if that's a thing anymore. And now there's, everybody's doing TED Talk, so it's not, you know, isn't that weird? It's like, this is a big deal, and now everybody's doing this, you know, just dilutes the whole thing, but whatever. But people rise up and have influence, and everybody's talking about them, and have you heard this, and have you heard that, you know, Simon Sinek, and this, that, and then you got weird people, you don't even know why they have influence, like, why are the Kardashians a thing? Like, I'm not even, like, just seriously, why? Why do they have any influence, right? You got people on Instagram, like, who are these people? I don't know. Why do they have influence? Jesus is not, praise God, not like that. He's not an innovator. He's not somebody who just popped up out of nowhere. And that's why Matthew takes careful labor and attention to make sure that we know that this Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas is indeed the promised child. That's why the whole Bible does that. In fact, you see, after a poetic and, and just beautiful depiction and illustration of how the world is created, right, in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the three, the fall, but, but really quickly, we get into genealogies even early on in Genesis. And here's why. Because Jesus' coming goes, the, the first mention of it goes all the way back to the fall in Genesis 3. That this is the promised child who, whom God said, even in that moment, when the whole thing fell apart, when the wheels came off and the fracture began to split throughout the whole world, God in that moment plants a seed of hope and says it won't always be like this. I want to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've been doing the Advent plan with your kiddos, man, even if you're an adult, this is just a good tool. So, uh, But I want to read how Silo Lloyd-Jones paraphrases or, or sort of writes this, this part of the story into um, her book as, as she's sort of um, putting handles on all this for kiddos as she talks about the, the good beginning and God's creation and how, the, and then she, really she's illustrating the fall. And, and she talks about how uh, really this should have been the end. That there was a very clear command, like this leads to life, Right? Do these things, enjoy all of this. There's one rule, don't eat of that, or that will lead to death. And what did they do? They chose the path that leads to death. Adam and Eve, this is the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, and, and if we're honest, like that could have, and even in many ways should have been the end. And that's what she says. In another story, it would have all been over, and that would have been the end. But, she says, not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. And even though he, he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream, that one day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children. This is the theme of the book, so beautiful. Uh, never, with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. But before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. He said, it will not always be so. I will come to you. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. And I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. 
one day, God himself would come. And that's Christmas, right? That moment, that's from Genesis 3, where God says, in the pronouncement of, of, of curses, in, in walking his children through the consequences of what they had just entered in, or what, what they just brought upon the world, he, he says that it won't always be this way. He, he says that, that one day, he says, I'll put enmity between, he's talking to the serpent, and he says, I'll put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first mention of the gospel. That is the first pronouncement or prophesying that, that God intended to do something about the brokenness of this world. So Matthew links it all the way back to Abraham, which is the birthing of the, the, the Jewish, the Israelite nation. If you read Luke's account, uh, after he gets things going, he, he starts, and, and goes, he starts with, with, with Jesus and goes backwards and goes all the way back to Adam. The point is, the point is that, that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. He is the culmination and the fulfillment of all that God has been doing in the Israelite people's history. And as Matthew writes to the Israelites, to, Jew, to Jewish people, he wants to make very clear that, hey, this is the promised Messiah. And, and you can know so because there is a direct lineage all the way back to the great covenant holders and, and, and fathers of the faith. Particularly, he starts out by talking about um, it, uh, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at those two in the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at what does that mean, that Jesus is the son of David, and what does it mean that he's the son of Abraham? the fulfillment and the, and the culmination of those covenants with those, those men. We're, we're going to look at that. Uh, but today I just want to, I want to stay sort of uh, 30,000 feet and look at this genealogy from, from a larger picture. And, and the point that, that Matthew's making, the big idea is that, hey, our God's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. He promises and he will fulfill. But that's a, uh, that's a bit of a throwaway line. You're used to hearing that at church, Right? But if we zoom in here, we think about this. We, it took, you know, Andrew Peterson two or three minutes to sing that, take us a minute or two to read it, or even less to skip over it. But in reality, we're talking about 41 or so generations. That's, that's thousands of years. So while it's, it's, a, it's a line you're used to hearing, God's a promise maker and a promise keeper, you're not surprised by hearing that at church, but if we're honest, in the midst of our stuff, in the midst of our life, it gets difficult to believe that. It gets difficult to live that out, right? But, and, and, and this genealogy actually gives us a, a reminder that, hey, God is not absent in the midst of the nitty-gritty, messy life that we live here and now, even today, because this genealogy represents messy, nitty-gritty life. Like, really messy and nitty-gritty. In fact, I entitled the sermon, Jesus' is Crazy Family Tree. Okay? So we're in the middle of the holidays. How many of y'all just shake your head at the thought of your family coming over? Right? And how many of you got to, like, you got to make disclaimers? There's, an, like, when a new, uh, somebody new comes into your family. I remember, uh, I remember when Riley came to my uh, grandpa's house for the first time. My grandpa was a very solemn man. Most of my childhood, he was just telling us to be quiet and, like, that's it, really. Just be quiet. Um, and he just wasn't a playful, he wasn't a joke. Like, that's just what he did. 
uh, loved him, like honorable man, glad to carry his name, but that's just kind of how he rolled. Um, and I remember the first time I brought Riley over, he's just like cutting jokes. And he's like, well, Jordan, that ain't the woman you had here last week. And I'm like, what, what? Like, he's just like, and, but it's, what's funny is I'd prefaced all of this to Riley. Be like, yeah, my grandpa's kind of grumpy. Probably won't talk to you. He's going to want you to stay out of the way of the TV because Fox News is going to be on. And that's what he's really into. Right. And so I prefaced all this. And then here I come in, he starts cracking jokes. And I'm like, I don't even know. We found out. Anyway, I won't even get into it. Uh, he had some health issues that led to him hitting the bottle, and we didn't know. Like, generally didn't know. <laughs> and so it's a little bit funny, but anyway. So you know what that's like, though, to, like, preface, you know, somebody's coming new, you know, some, so-and-so, like, a, you know, a daughter or somebody's, like, married in, you know, we got a new brother-in-law or mother-in-law, you know, whatever. And you, and you got to, like, okay, well, just let me, here's what you need to know about Uncle so-and-so, right? Like, just expect that, you know, well, you know, we all have our favorite, our, our, you know, crazy family tree stuff, and we're right in the middle of the holiday, so you're all aware of that. Well, Jesus' family tree here has got some stories behind it. So I want to look at three things from this, right? We're not going to preach it. We're not going to go line by line through here. Uh, but but as, as we see this, these 17 verses containing all of these generations that lead to, to Jesus, the big idea is that God's a promise maker and a promise keeper. Uh, but, but I want to look at three points. That, uh, is first, first one is that, is that God did what he said he would do. Okay, that God did it. That's the first point, that God did it. Okay, and then secondly, I want to look at who he used to do it. And we'll be encouraged by that. And then thirdly, I want to look at how he did it, okay, how he did it. So the first point, the first big idea is that he did indeed do what he said he would do, um, that, that God promised a Savior. He promised a Messiah. He promised someone who would come and, and set his people free, and he, and he did it. He did it, okay? But we're going to zoom in, as I said, um, because it's, it takes just a moment to say that. But this passage is encompassing all of this time and all of this real life and all of these real struggles. And it's important for us to remember that even when we wonder if he's working or we wonder if he's present or, or and listen closely, we wonder if he's trustworthy. Have you wondered those things? Where is God? Is he still here? Can I, can I trust him? I just, just heard a story from one of our members about this, this woman she's trying to minister to that she works with and just went through a hard week. And she, and she told her, you can stop praying for me. Clearly, I know you tell me God's praying, you're praying for me, but clearly God doesn't care because he just did this really awful thing. It's hard. Life's hard, right? There's, 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 there's deep pain and woundedness and confusion that comes in our life. And we need to be sure that the Bible is not ignorant of those things. The Bible doesn't speak in just ethereal, you know, themes like these just throwaway sayings and nuggets of truth that don't connect to our real life. The Bible is full of examples of, yeah, he knows that life is hard. He sees that woundedness and he, and he weeps with us. That's one of the beauties of the shortest verse. Everybody laughs. Oh yeah, the, you know, John 11, whatever, you know, that, that Jesus wept. Well, in that is, 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 is the sovereign Lord saying, even though he knows he's about to bring Lazarus back from the dead, that's the story there behind Jesus weeping, right? He knows he's about to call that dude back out of the grave, and yet when he comes up and sees the pain of Mary and Martha, he stops and he weeps with them. 
So yes, God has a grand plan and he has this big, this, this big finale, this big redemption story that he's aiming toward, but he sees the pain in the moment. He sees the struggle and he is not indifferent toward it. He cares deeply. And so as we read these stories, as we see the, the, the listing of the people that are, that are brought in here, um, I want us to be encouraged that he does what he said he would do and, how, and who he uses to do it and how he does it. So the first is just the very, like we just don't want to overlook this idea that what we're celebrating at Christmas is that God indeed fulfilled his promises. What he said he would do, he did. But you got to think, for generation after generation and lifetime after lifetime, people had knew that God had promised to do this. So right now, we're in this tension. We, we, as we talk about Advent, we say, okay, he's, he has come. We look back to that and we celebrate and we give thanks for that. But we're also looking forward to the day that he comes again. Right? And as the world spirals into chaos and things happen, there's a lot of speculation about whether he'll come back and, and if it's close. Right? How many of you have had a conversation about that lately? You think it's close? All this stuff? Right? Vaccine, mark of the beast. This so-and-so, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, sorry, I should not flippantly say that stuff. I'm just saying those are conversations that are happening. I'm not correlating the two, right? I'm not correlating the two, I promise. Um, I'm just saying, as things get crazy, people start firing up. Oh, oh, that's in Revelation. This must be this. This must be this. We start getting out graphs, right? Anytime you get out graphs, just, just politely step away, right? They don't know. They might think they know. They don't know. We looked at that in Daniel, but, but. But it also highlights this theme that, hey, we're not the first generation to think that that's about to happen. There's, there's just archives and archives of people who've written books that are like, hey, it's going to happen on this day because this and this and this and this and this and this. Those don't age well, right? Especially when they call a specific date. So then we start to ask, well, is he really going to come? And then this matters for you in your everyday life. Is he really going to come? Is that just a vague promise? Is that just something that's out there for us to, to cling to? Or is he really going to come? Is our faith really worth it? Is this just fire insurance? Hey, in case he comes, I want to go ahead and have this thing, and I'll attend church a few times a year, make sure, you know, all right, if he shows up, cool, cool, cool. I made payment on that. Let me, get, let me, let me find my ticket, right? Yeah, yeah, I was uh, baptized on this day when I was seven. Cool, does that work, right? That's kind of how, like, it's a bit of an extreme, but that's kind of how we look at this. Like, okay, if, if this turns out to be true, I want to make sure I've paid in. But I'm not really sure it is, so I'm just going to go ahead and get what I can out of this, right? Get what I can out of this life now. We need to zero in on this. We need to ask ourselves this. Is this true? Are we in the in-between? He's come, and he's coming again. Is he really coming again? Matthew says, hey, for generation after generation after generation, people have wondered, where's the promised Messiah? People have wondered. God, has said, you said you were going to come. You said you were going to send a Messiah. You said you were going to restore the kingdom of Israel. You said you were going to give us a child. You said you were going to give us a king. And yet here we are, right? They go, through, they go through a lot of struggles, even in exile. It's mentioned in there. I don't know if you caught that, but, but they talk about the time of deportation into Babylon, which we looked at in Daniel, right? So it's not like this is on a, a you know, up and to the right trajectory for the Israelites. There's been some deep and dark seasons and valleys and, and, and times of silence and times of struggle as a nation on a, on a large macro scale. You zoom that into their own personal lives. You don't think they had some questions? You don't think they had some doubts? You don't think they had some fears? What if this is misplaced? 
You start to try to pass this on to your kids. You start to try to translate this into what they should be putting their hope in. And you have your own doubts show up and, and, and you start to wonder. And, and, and so Matthew takes painstakingly time and in detail to say, listen, God said he would. And it went generation after generation all the way back. And he's a God whose promises have come true. And this Christ child is screaming to the world that what God says he will do, in fact, he will do it. He'll do it. So do we believe that today? Do we believe that he will do what he has said he will do? And I want us to think about this personally. Do you believe this? Because we get in a lot of trouble when we start doubting this. And not just us. It's a theme all throughout the scriptures. We get in a lot of trouble when we start doubting that God will do what he said that he will do. You could even make the argument that that's what happened in Babel. God said he would be, you know, here and present. They, they, they don't see that active, so they start saying, you know what, we'll do that. We'll accomplish our our glorification. Let us build a, a tower. We see that in Abraham, which is one of the first, it, he is the first mentioned in the actual genealogy there in verse two. Abraham received a promise from God in the midst of, of infertility and shame and judgment from the world and lack of hope. God gives Abraham a promise. You will have a child in your old age and not just one. But I'm going to use you and your elderly wife to make a whole nation that'll be my people. That's the promise that he gives. But what we see is that a lot of life happens in between that promise and the arrival of Isaac, who is the promised child. A lot of life happens for you and I in between the promise hearing and knowing that God's going to come back and before he comes back, before we die. A lot of life happens. And in that life, Abraham and Sarah start to, die, start to doubt. And, and it doesn't just happen quickly, but over time, their doubts start to grow. You know, they believe for a moment, but then their doubts start to grow. Have you had that? You, you believe, but then you, your doubts start to grow. And over time, they decide, you know what? I don't think God's going to do what he said he was going to do. So we better take matters into our own hands. And that's where you get the story of Abraham sleeping with his handmaid, Hagar, which produces the not-promised child of Ishmael, which is a whole other lesson in of itself. Right? But we see that happen. We see that over and over again in the, the Bible, where God makes a promise to his people, and instead of believing and waiting on him, we sort of, you know, go elsewhere, we, we commit adultery on God and step toward someone else for the fulfillment of our heart's longings. We see this. I'm going to make a quick connection between the Pharisees. If you know the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these were the religious people in Jesus' day and age. They were the ones who were teaching the Torah. They were the ones teaching the, 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 the Israelite nation. And I got to think in some ways, we could, we could mock them. We could, we could talk about how they got it so wrong. And they did. But I got to think at some point, some of the motivation there is God's not going to do what he said he was going to do. They start to believe those doubts. So let me do it, you know, the way that Abraham went to Hagar to take things into his own hands. The Pharisees, the people of Israel decide, you know what, I don't think God's going to do what he said he's going to do. So they turn and commit adultery with the law. 
They have an affair with the law. They, they turn the law of God, which was meant to be a, a tutor or a schoolmaster, as it says in Galatians, to lead us to God, to lead us to the gospel. And they, instead, they try to get something out of it it was never meant to give. They, they, they give themselves over to this relationship with the law to try to take things into their own hands, to gain their own righteousness, with it, instead of waiting on God to fulfill his promises. So when we don't believe that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, we get into trouble. We get into trouble because we start taking things in their own hands. And then what that looks like for you. Those are the longings in your heart. That you know that, you, that God has promised that he will fulfill. Maybe you're, you're single and instead of trusting in, in God to fulfill you or to bring the mate that they, they would have for you, you, you start to Take things in your own hands. You start to lower your standards. You start to go to someone. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe, maybe, you, instead, maybe it's similar to Abraham and Isaac where you, you're, you're longing for children and, and instead of waiting and, and being patient, you start to maybe step out. And, and I'm not trying to cast judgment on all of those things. It's complicated. It's, it's difficult to navigate what exactly does the Lord have. But the point is, if God has promised to be the fulfiller of our heart's desires and, and if we start doubting that he will, we start getting ourselves into trouble. In fact, the whole idea behind, what, what, the big idea behind the Beatitudes is that we just walked through, we've kind of gone back to the beginning now of, of Matthew, but the Beatitudes is God's promises, right? That, that we will receive the kingdom, that we will be comforted, that we shall inherit the earth, that we shall be satisfied, our hunger and our thirst shall be met, that we will receive mercy, that we will see God, that we will be called the sons of God, right? That these are the promises that God has, has said that he will fulfill, and when we start to question, we start to doubt, we start to fear, we step into places that we're not supposed to be. We start taking our, our, our heart's desires, our questions, and other places. So, Matthew screams at us, hey, there was lots of years and lots of life and lots of questions about whether God was gonna do what he said he was gonna do. But take heart, he's done it. Take heart, he's done it. So, we, right now, we need to take heart because he'll do it. He's promised we'll be fulfilled. We'll be satisfied. We'll receive mercy. We'll be called peace. Like all, all those things and more. He will do it. All right. So that's the first point that God is a God who will do what he said that he will do. Second point is who he used to do that. So we've already talked about our jacked up family tree, but I want you to see that these are ordinary people, not ideal people. Okay. So God, this is who God used to bring about his fulfillment of the promise. Who does he use? You think he scans the, 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 the history and says, you know what, give me some varsity, I'll take that guy and that gal and that one and we'll put together this really great team. No, I mean, you can read these names and you actually start tracing them back through the biblical story and you realize, oh, probably not who I would have picked. <laughs> probably not who I'm gonna make uh, the face of my campaign here. Right? In fact, if you're a PR person for the Bible, you're going to be consulting Matthew to leave a lot of these out. Like, ooh, I don't know, man. You know Tamar's story? Ooh, I don't know. Judah, right? Ooh, Bathsheba, y'all know what she's connected to? I don't think you want to list her in there. Right? But Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to include these people. And while we can't go line by line and person through person, I want to, I want to just highlight a little bit because... Um, we need to be reminded that God uses ordinary people, not ideal people. 
So we say every week here that, that we're, this is a place for flawed and imperfect people, right? And we got to be careful with that because the point of that statement is not to make us comfortable in our sin. So if you've received it that way, you know what? I don't need to worry about holiness. I keep saying, church is like, oh, we're flawed and imperfect, so no big deal. No, no, that's not the point. The point is, when we say that, is, is to make sure that as people come in here, that they know that, hey, no matter what you've done, Jesus' blood is bigger. Jesus' grace is more sufficient. Jesus' grace is, is, is far beyond. No matter what your story holds in its past, Jesus is bigger than, okay? And so that, that's the idea. And that, that we need to know that, that his invitation is to continually be a people who are repenting and running toward him, right? That, that his grace is sufficient, his mercy is unending, and that no matter where we are, in our faith, in our walk, that the invitation is to come and approach Jesus through the blood of Christ and be received. And as we are received to Christ, we're made new and renewed day by day and degree by degree into the image that God has attended for us. So we've tried to add on to that, that it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there because God has life for us. He wants us to come to him so that we can be changed. So, but we need to be reminded that, hey, God works through imperfect, ordinary, flawed, and even jacked up people. So the inclusion of these names, man, they're, they're not sanitary. Right? This is not a sanitized version of what God has been doing throughout history. So, you know, some of this you read, and you've never done a Bible reading plan, you get like into the, the meat of Genesis, and you're like, oh my goodness. I don't think I want to tell my friends to read this, right? There's some crazy stuff. Some crazy stuff. God doesn't sanitize his work throughout history. He, he, he's, he's very clear that he's working in and through and in the midst of broken people. Not because these people are great, but because he is. And that'll be our last point. But, so let's look briefly at just a couple of the, maybe the lesser known names and perhaps maybe the more, more scandalous. So I mentioned Tamar. So if you don't know her story, you can read it in Genesis. But, but, but just first of all, the fact that women are included in this genealogy is a, is a profound statement from our Lord in, in general because they weren't to be included in, in Jewish lineage, right? It's just, just the men, firstborn, and so on, right? But the fact that Jesus includes five women in this genealogy and, and people who are not from the Jewish you know, line, they're, they're Gentiles, they're grafted in, all of that is saying something. All of that is a message to us as his people that, hey, this is not about just the clean and perfect, right? And so even that her, that her name is mentioned and, and, and Ruth and Bathsheba and um, Rahab, like those are profound statements in and of themselves. But if you know the story of Tamar, right, um, her story is, is tragic, it's wild, and it's, and it's scandalous. So she is, is left hopeless by this group of cowardly men. So I, I don't have time to walk through the whole story, but basically uh, Judah, who is, uh, you know, the tribe of Judah, it, it's, it's mentioned with, with, with a, um, an air of strength, as you, as you read the Bible, that, that David would come from the tribe of Judah, and ultimately Jesus, right, the line of the tribe of Judah, and, and so, and that's good and right, and it's not wrong, but, but the story behind that is that Judah, as he has a son, and he, and he marries Tamar, and he's evil and cowardly, and he ends up dying before she is pregnant, and so uh, the, the obligation is the brother, right, her brother-in-law is supposed to take her in and, and, and redeem her, because this is a culture in which women can't uh, be educated and have jobs and, and, and um, sustain themselves, and so without children, without a, without a son, and without a husband, they are, they are very hopeless. And so God had written into the law that, okay, if this, this, this man dies, the brother-in-law is supposed to step in. And so his brother-in-law is, is cowardly and chooses not to do that in a, in a quite scandalous way. He decides to go ahead and indulge in the sexual act but not impregnate her on purpose 
so that his inheritance doesn't have to be split. Okay, so she's still left hopeless. Now, God kills that joker too. So now Judah's two sons down connected to this woman Tamar. So he's like, I don't know if I want to give the next one. So he doesn't. So he withholds, leaving Tamar without hope, without means. So Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, knowing that Judah is a, is a widower, places herself in his path. He sleeps with her, pays her, intends to slip off, hide into the night, and never bring it up. But she has a plan, and she blackmails him, basically, and requires him to do what he should have done in the first place, fulfill his responsibility in the first place, and care for her. Listen, you want to tell that story if, to your spouse as you're bringing them into your family dinner? Well, see, the thing about Grandpa and Aunt Tamar, <laughs> right? Like, that's, a, that's not a story we're excited to tell. But it's in here. And a lot of people just want to highlight Tamar and the fact that she's in there and how scandalous is that? I'm like, no, no, let's look at Judah. Let's look at that dude, right? He's cowardly, he fails to, to fulfill his responsibility. Yeah, she got desperate and she did some things that are questionable, but God showed her mercy because of her desperation in that. And he brings about this story and he continues this lineage. How many of y'all have been like, you know what? I'm done with you, Judah. Go into somebody else. God doesn't do that. I made a promise. It's coming through you. This is how it's going to happen. We're going on. Messy as it may be, Tamar gets a name listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, the woman from, from not from Jewish lineage. She's in, she's in Jericho in a, in a rough part of town. As the, the Israelites come into siege there, she's a prostitute living in the wall. The two spies get, you know, find themselves in her, her room, and, and she hears from God, serves him, and, and ends up marrying into the, the lineage, Salmon takes her, marries her, and the lineage continues on through them. We, we know Ruth's story is one of brokenness. We see Bathsheba is, is mentioned indirectly as, as the wife of Uriah there in verse 6. Uh, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. If you know that story, that's who David slept with in his moment of utter failure as king and as follower of, of the Lord, he, he sleeps with Bathsheba, who's Uriah's wife, turns into a, a murderous um, mess where David, trying to get out of it, has Uriah killed. Uriah the Hittite, so she also isn't a part of the, the Jewish lineage, but, but she's brought in, and God uses this brokenness to go ahead and bring about his redemption story. So, man, as you just go on through there, and you see story after story, some have better endings, some have scandalous endings, but, but nonetheless, the, the, the overall theme is that God uses ordinary broken people, not ideal people. Part of that is because he has to, right? Because there's not any ideal people. If you were coming, if you're visiting here thinking that, oh, maybe the journey, maybe, maybe they got it figured out, maybe they're ideal people. Nope. We're broken too. Right? Um, and, and you are as well. So even if we weren't, you came in and messed it all up. So, but we weren't, so no worries. No worries. God uses ordinary, flawed people to accomplish his purposes. And it's wonderful news. 
Here's the deal. Matthew knows that the Jewish people care about heritage. We're kind of a rootless culture, right? We don't, have, we don't care about that as much. It's interesting, though. It's kind of growing. Answer Street, or maybe it was a fad there for a while, AnswerStreet.com and those different places, people sending in tubes of spit and them tracking down, telling you where you're from, right? So that's a thing. It's, it's growing, right? What, what is that? Well, people care about where, where am I from? Like, what, what, what's my story, right? It's this, this connection, because we, sort of, we kind of define ourselves by what we have accomplished, don't we? In our, in our, not, not who we are like as far as a, a genealogy or a heritage, but, but this is not uncommon for these, these people. They, it matters where Jesus came from. It matters where they came from. It, was, it said something about them. It defined them in a way. And so Matthew knows that, and as he's writing that, he, he's, he's saying, hey, first of all, Jesus is exact, like Jesus is who God has been saying he will send, all the way back to Genesis 3, from Abraham to David, all the way down, this is the promised Messiah. But he's also saying that we don't have to hide our messiness and our brokenness because we're tempted to do that. We're tempted to not tell that part of our story. We're tempted to hide and conceal and make sure that we kind of keep those things in our closet. And, and Matthew's saying, hey, it's all out there. This has been a messy journey, but God has been faithful throughout it, and he uses ordinary people to get his work done. So God weaves his grace throughout the Bible even through the genealogies, right? We see that, as I said, we start with the creation and then pretty quickly, God says, I'm gonna send somebody through the offspring of Eve and so then we get these genealogies. Okay, Eve begat so-and-so and, you know, we go on down so that we can trace it all the way back from Eve down to Jesus. So God is not kidding. He doesn't let down. He's not like falling asleep at the wheel. He's not late to the deal. He didn't get busy with something else and forget to send Jesus. No, no, it was in the fullness of time as we looked at last Sunday night that Jesus or that Jesus was sent by the Father. There is intentionality to all that God has done. And in our lives, messy as they may be, and wondering if he's present, wondering if he cares, wondering if he's trustworthy, we can look at our lives. We can look at our messy testimonies, our failures, our fears, our seasons of doubt, and say, God is going to be faithful, and he will fulfill his promises in spite of my failures, in spite of my messiness. So the genealogies remind us that God loves to redeem sinners. He loves to work through imperfect people. He loves to produce something beautiful out of the article attached to your app is the um, sordid lineage, beautiful legacy. So he, and, and the quote from this is, he loves to produce something beautiful out of sordid family backgrounds. He loves to make foreigners his children and reconcile his enemies. He loves to make all things work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose from Romans 8, 28. So, so that is our God. He uses people that are struggling. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you. That no matter what you've experienced, no matter what you've been through, no matter how messy your past is or what kind of mess you're in right now, God's not finished with you. He's not done. He's not giving up. He's not walking away because you messed it up. No, no, he's leaning in. He's leaning in and saying, this is what the cross is for. Come, sinner. Come, child. Repent. Let's, let's keep going. Let's look at Jesus. Let's, let's move ahead. I've not given up. I will still accomplish what I plan to accomplish. You, come on, take the next step forward. We'll get there together. I, I will do it. And that brings us to our last point is how does he do this? He did it, and he used messy people. And, they, and the question is how? Does he clean them up? Does he whitewash their stories, make sure that no, no, no. How does he do it? He does it through his faithfulness, not ours. The reason that this story exists, the reason that all these names can be listed is because it doesn't depend on you and me and our faithfulness. It depends on him and his faithfulness. 
We see in Second or First Thessalonians chapter five, he's wrapping up the book, and and Paul encourages the people this way. He says, "Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely." What he's saying here is, "May God Himself do this work in you." You wonder if He's working. You wonder if He's present. You wonder if He's going to do what He said He's going to do. Paul says, "Yeah, He will," because listen to how He says it. Now may God sanctify you. He's going, to, he's going to be the active agent in this. And may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this. This is such good news. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So Paul looks at a church. Stories much like you and me. Stories of unbelief, testimonies of failures, messiness infertilities, fears, sins, divorces, mess everywhere. And he says, hey, hey, give me, give me eyes. Church, may he, the God of peace, sanctify you completely. So he looks at his people, he says, hey, the God of peace, the one who made peace by the blood of his cross, he is going to be the one sanctifying you completely. You wonder, man, why am I still struggling with this sin? When is God going to show up? What does this look like? Does he even care? He says, no, no, hey, God works in the mess, in the silence of generations, in the fears of what ifs. God is at work in there. And he says, he will sanctify you completely. He will be the one who does it. And through that, man, our, if we're in Jesus, we will be kept until Jesus comes. If you're in Jesus, you will be kept until Jesus comes. He will do it. It says, he who calls you is faithful. You may not, like, you're going to have seasons of unfaithfulness. You're going to have times of failure, but he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. This is the good news of the gospel. Amen, church. This is the good news of what God offers us in the gospel. It's not a come, try harder, do better, get this figured out. Here's seven ways to a better life. You do this, you'll be happy. No, no. It it is, hey, you're not going to figure it out. You are imperfect. You will keep failing. You cannot earn your righteousness. You cannot achieve forgiveness apart from Jesus. But God said he would, and he has. And he sent Jesus, that whole list of names. Jesus is the redeemer of them all. Jesus is the culmination of God's promise to care for a broken and suffering people, a sinful, imperfect people. Jesus is the answer to that problem. Jesus is the answer to the brokenness of the world that God has seen, that we have seen, that we've bemoaned. Jesus is the answer to the, the moments of, of fear and, and, and discouragement and doubt in your life. Jesus is the answer that Jesus has come. And yeah, it was generations where they wondered if he would show up. And we're in the midst of generations wondering if he's going to come back. And, and Matthew is here to say, hey, our God keeps his promises. He who called you, he's faithful. And he'll do it. He'll do it. So if you're here, and you're trying anything to get your life right other than coming to the cross and falling at the feet of Jesus. The invitation that the Bible is screaming from beginning to end is you can't. You can't. But he can. And he did. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That he did. He come and he made a way. He himself is our peace. He stepped in to accomplish what we couldn't. So come and trust him today. 
Maybe for the first time. Maybe you've been in church, but you've been confused about what it is. You don't know what exactly it means to be a Christian. Maybe you've been pretending. Maybe you've just been playing church. Maybe you're here checking it out. Maybe you've never made any claims of that. The, the, the Jesus of the Bible stepped out of glory and into heaven. What a wonderful condescension, as Spurgeon says, magnificent condescension that he steps down. We, we celebrate when, when celebrities or you know, athletes step into like the, the broken you know, ghettos of the world. And serve. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but like we're like, oh, how kind is he that he left his mansion to go serve in the ghetto and you know, serve some food or, or whatever it may be. No, no, look at Jesus. He leaves the, the, the glory of the Father. He leaves the glory of his throne and he steps into our mess, our ghetto, our, our suffering, our poverty, our full of self-righteousness and self-deception and, and broken past, Jesus steps in, out of the glory, and steps in to our mess to make a way. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He's the only one who can save you, and he's the only one who can keep you, and he can, and he will. He's a trustworthy Savior. He promises, and he fulfills. And we trust, and we cling, and we worship and we proclaim until he comes back. Let's pray. God, help us. We need it. We need your reminder. We need your truth. We need your encouragement. We need the Spirit to reveal the dark places of our hearts where we're beginning to doubt, where we're beginning to turn to other places and to, to move in, to replace those doubts with faith to give our hearts the ability to keep longing for you, to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, here I stand, trusting in you at the, feet, at the foot of the cross, clinging to you as our hope. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. Help us to trust. Help us to worship as we wait. It's in your name we pray. Amen.